Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. A podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. This episode is sponsored by ABMP Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals. ABMP membership combines the insurance you need, the free CE you want, and the personalized service you deserve. They are featuring their new dynamic five-minute muscle review app with muscle-specific palpation and technique videos and the award-winning Massage and Bodywork magazine, where both Whitney and myself, Toluca, are frequent contributors. Yes, it's certainly easy to see why people love ABMP. I myself have been a member for years, and it's clear the organization is driven to offer loads of key benefits to their members, and their primary focus is on delivering exceptional opportunities and services. So for our listeners who joined ABMP as new members, you can save $24 on your membership at abmp.com forward slash thinking. With ABMP, you can expect more. That's cool. That's a good offer. And thanks for uh, joining me today, Whitney. We're going to talk about an interesting topic. We're going to talk about tendinopathy and tendon issues. That sounds great. Tendon tissue issues today. So uh, how are things out in the Rocky Mountains this morning? Ah, it's winter. It's awesome. It's time to get out and get in the snow and ski and do that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I went uh, ski-joring with my dogs yesterday, which is always an adventure. It's like hang on for dear life and get ready to you know, have an anterior cruciate ligament sprain. <laughs> That's where you tie your dog to your waist and they pull you around on skis? Is yeah, that uh-huh. yeah. So, and I've got two of them, and they're both young and strong. And uh, I run them every day on my bike, so they're used to pulling very hard every day. So um, when I get out there on the skis, like usually once or twice a year we get to do it and and because uh, we don't get, we're not getting that much snow these days. But yeah, a couple times a year I get to do it. Went out and did it yesterday. It was perfect conditions for them. So uh, I survived. That's what. Uh, that's uh, the mark of a successful uh, ski joring operation. That's to survive awesome. with No injuries. It's <laughs> definitely on my wish list. Yeah. Not, so. the, not the injury, but the the getting pulled by the dog kind of thing. That's right. Yeah, it's fun. So. Uh, so yeah, so I didn't develop any tendon injuries, but uh, that's what we're going to be talking about here today. Okay. Shall we jump right in? I got a question yeah, for you. Yeah, let's do it. Can yeah. you tell us what is tendinopathy or some examples, that kind of thing? Get us oriented to the territory here. Yeah, so, you know, there's been um, quite a bit of sort of convoluted uh, perspectives around terminology, especially with this condition for, for a while, the last couple of decades. You know, the most common term that people hear about and talk about when we, when we think tendon pathology is the term tendinitis. And, of course, by its name, it does indicate, uh, by the suffix I-T-I-S, it does indicate an inflammatory condition. And for many years, that, of course, was the primary thought process around what was going on with tendonitis, that it was an inflammatory problem. I know, you know, back when I was in school, we were taught that tendonitis was a problem which was caused by micro-tearing of tendon fibers and the subsequent inflammatory reaction that comes as a result of that. And so we treated it as an inflammatory problem. Um, you know, sometime back around the mid, roughly mid-80s or so, I think this was, mid to late 80s, um, with the development of some other imaging capabilities, uh, we were really learning a lot more about chronic overuse tendon disorders and finding that in many instances there was an, inf- uh, an absence of inflammatory cells. And this really was not, in fact, tendon fiber tearing in most of these disorders, but was in fact more of a collagen degeneration and collagen breakdown of the sort of the construction matrix of the tendon itself. And so the term tendinosis began to be used a bit more frequently. That basically means pathology of the tendon 
or more commonly nowadays too, we see the term tendinopathy, which simply just means tendon pathology. So those are the two most common terms, and it does become important, and we'll get into this a little bit later in our discussion too, about making that distinction between inflammatory versus non-inflammatory variations of those chronic overuse tendon pathologies. I look forward to chiming in there because I, as you know, am an inflammation fanatic. Yeah. And uh, there's actually, I don't know if you're familiar with Jill Cook's 2016 paper where she came back and said, well, maybe I was wrong about that inflammation stuff. Yes, yeah. right, right. Okay, I thought cool. that was interesting. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay, so like I started you know, changing all this stuff and things that I was writing and then you're know, like, okay, now we go back in the other direction. So. Well, yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah, right. Yeah, so speaking of inflammatory things, you know, there is another inflammatory issue associated with uh, tendon pathologies that uh, does not get spoken about quite as frequently, but it's certainly something I think we need to be aware of, and that's something called tenosynovitis. And this is, um, the important thing about tenosynovitis is that not every tendon is susceptible to this. This only affects tendons that are surrounded by a synovial sheath. And this is going to be, for the vast majority, tendons in the distal extremities that have to take a sharp angular turn around a joint and then are bound closely to that joint by a fibrous retinaculum. And then the tendon sheath is designed to reduce friction between the tendon and the synovial sheath. And then uh, compression or chronic irritation of that tendon during movement will cause an inflammatory uh, reaction or sometimes adhesions to develop between the tendon and surrounding synovial sheath, and that is tenosynovitis. So those are the main types of tendinopathy or tendon pathologies that we tend to, to be looking at. That's a great distinction. That's interesting. I look forward to yeah. hearing what you have to say about yeah. that. So what are uh, you got typical signs for us or examples of, of uh, conditions in the body that will give people a sense of what we're talking about? Yeah, so, you know, interestingly, the, the signs and symptoms with all three of these are virtually identical and very difficult to distinguish. Even in the inflammatory versions of tendonitis and tenosynovitis, it's rare that you see really significant visible inflammation in those problems, even though there may be some inflammatory aspects present. And to me, that's why I think it is so important to zero in on other aspects of the physical examination process, because there are some clear patterns that show up during physical examination with, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in particular pain with uh, resisted movements, you know, pain of the tendon with resisted movements, pain with direct compression of those tendons. So you know, knowing their location, knowing how to put a load on them, those are important factors that will help uh, indicate the likelihood of them. So they, you know, they tend to be most painful from chronic overuse, and then they, you know, are less painful with rest. So there's a group of sort of key indicators that we see when we look um, at, you know, what seems to be the, the symptom pattern that shows up with them. And then, of course, really important, I think, is looking at uh, information that comes out of the history from an individual about how uh, you know, what kind of things might uh, come from this. So, you know, if we were to talk about history a little bit, like what what would be some of the things that you would think of to look at as, as possible causes that you'd try to pick up in, in discussions with somebody about them? Well, let's, I want to, I got some thoughts about that, but I want to make sure that we get some actual examples of the kinds of uh, complaints uh, clients will have. And I wrote down something key that you said. You said pain and resisted movement. Yeah. But what are, before I jump into the causes, what are some of the conditions? I'm thinking like uh, hamstring, tendon uh, sensitivity. Uh, I don't have the list up here, but let me look it up because I want to know. Yeah, so just, 
if we were to think about like some of the very most common tendon pathologies, places where they seem to occur really frequently, like patellar tendon is far more common for a tendon pathology than hamstring tendons are. And a lot of this has to do with the biomechanics of how load is focused on those particular tendons. So during your physical examination, if you were to find you know, tenderness to palpation in the patellar tendon itself, and pain with resisted knee extension, which is a, a movement that would put a load on that tendon at the same time that we're you know, uh, testing and evaluating it. So um, knowing your muscle actions and being able to determine how to put a load on that particular tendon, let's say you know, you're looking at the wrist, the common wrist extensors with a condition like lateral epicondylitis, which is a chronic overuse tendon disorder performing a resisted wrist extension movement. And then even sometimes when you palpate the tendon at the same time, that really even ramps up the, the pain response uh, again even higher. Uh, so that's another good indication that we're looking at a tendon pathology versus something like, you know, ligament disorders or you know, muscle problems or something like that. Okay, so you mentioned a few things commonly known as tennis elbow, golfer's elbow. Uh, there's also things like plantar fasciosis or fasciitis in the foot. You mentioned patellar uh, tendinopathy or patellar pain, hamstring tendinopathy. Yeah, and certainly rotator cuff rotator uh, tendon cuff. disorders are really common, especially with the, the posterior rotator cuff muscles, the infraspinatus and teres minor, and throwing uh, athletes and people who are doing you know upper extremity throwing activities. Those are, are certainly real common ones as well. Yep. And so you've made some really interesting distinctions about uh, different types of mechanical factors in those different uh, conditions, but there, there's also some universal things there that we can think about and look at and talk about. And yeah, some so of those what, actually apply to other inflammatory tissue conditions too, or potentially inflammatory, because I know that's a debate, such as bursitis yeah. or things like that. We can use some of these same principles for those things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so what what about the causes yeah. we were going to dive into? Tell me a little bit what your you, thoughts are on well, these causes and things. I did a little of my homework, re reviewed some of this for myself before our conversation today. And basically, it's as I remembered, there's no consensus about causes. There's lots of different people with their theories and lots of different methodologies that assume a particular cause. And they include, this is just right off of Wikipedia, they're saying uh, theories that involve strain, tenocyte-related collagen synthesis disruption. That's back to the uh, potential degeneration thing that you mentioned before. Load-induced ischemia. Uh, neural sprouting, which is an interesting one I'll mention later too. Thermal damage. Hey, yeah, and let's can, let's back up just a little sure. bit and talk about those two and just sort of explain a little bit about what that <laughs> might mean. Like what yeah. what what would be load-induced ischemia? What is neural sprouting for, for people who might not be familiar with those concepts or terms? Yeah, I, uh, I'm i just reading the list here. Load-induced ischemia is not something that I'm typically thinking of when I'm working, although it's, again, it's a theory of what might induce that tendinopathy mm -hmm. situation. I Just guessing from the words there, you tell me if you know more than me about this, but it's talking about disruptions to the kind of circulatory perfusion that's needed to keep it healthy based yeah. by load, yeah. based on load. So neural sprouting, overgrowth of uh, neural branches, nerve arborization into injured tissues often or into the areas around injured tissues that, this is a theory, that increases their sensitivity or increases the pain. More nerve endings equals more signal. In this theory, yeah, now this is pain. one that I found really interesting um, when you were mentioning this uh, in, in our discussion beforehand about the, the neural sprouting because it's not ever been real clear in a lot of instances why tendinosis is painful. Like what if it's not fiber tearing, yeah. what is it that produces that pain? And this yes. uh, the idea of the neural sprouting seems to me like a viable um, 
or plausible discussion or explanation for what might be the cause of pain in a lot of those tendon disorders. Sure. There's the whole discussion about do nerve endings equal pain, which is not yeah. clear. It's not always a linear relationship. Yeah. And then there's also the inflammation debate, that infl- inflammatory situations in tissues, when they get inflamed, they release cytokines and things that irritate nerve endings and cause pain. So yeah. and then degeneration, too, that might be uh, a pain signal generator, a nociceptive generator. And then there's a whole central nervous system phenomenon there where the the degradation or degeneration does set up the nervous system to be more sensitive in the future to painful stimulus. So if you've been yeah. through it, pain in a particular tendon, you're more likely perhaps to feel pain there later. That's an important one, I think, because especially when you look at chronic overuse um, movement patterns, and that certainly is a key thing that seems to lead to a lot of these these overuse tendon disorders, the history of a prior pain in that area. Again, we're, we're talking about maybe it's not so much just that there is weakened or damaged tissue in that area as much as maybe we have a sensitized. Uh, sort of a sensitized neural pattern that um, we need to change the That's right. Change the, the patterning around somehow or other. That's right. And the good news is that manual therapy can play a great role, as can movement and different things like that, which we'll mention as we go through, yeah. I'm sure. I wanted to mention, okay. too, uh, Van der Vlist's a uh, paper that just came out this year on Achilles tendinopathy causes. It was a systematic review. He looked at, I think, nine studies. Unfortunately, he he and his team said they were all pretty highly biased, but they still mm-hmm. extracted the most significant features out of those for causes, at least in terms of Achilles tendinopathies. Yeah. And the most significant factors he found were medications, especially a couple of classes of antimicrobials, and transplants. If you've had an organ transplant or taking these kind of super antibiotics, you're more likely to have tendon issues. Yeah. The second, and what the, there's a particular family of antibiotics they mentioned in there. Yeah, uh, I didn't write that the down. fluoroquinolones. That's it. That's uh, it. Yeah. That's it. That uh, are of particular concern. And a lot of people are taking those just for you know basic bronchial infections and things like that, and make no connection whatsoever between hey, I suddenly started having some Achilles tendon problems, and I can't figure out why because I'm not running or jumping or anything like that, and yeah. That's a really good indicator of why to look at uh, medications and things like that in the history. That's right. Interesting also, Vanderlist found alcohol consumption as an, the second most significant factor. And this is That mo- was interesting. Yeah, this is yeah. moderate alcohol consumption. Yeah. Cold weather training, reduced plantar flexor strength. So plantar flexors are anything that helps you point your toes, including the serial complex and muscles probably within the foot. Uh, and then there's... N- other what he called putative uh, uh, causes, things that people say cause it, but they couldn't find evidence for, included obesity, static foot posture, and physical activity level, either too much or too little. Couldn't find a clear evidence-based correlation between that and tendinopathy, at least for the Achilles tendon. Yeah. So, I mean, I can see uh, with even with a lack of, uh, and again, this, there's some interesting things in this paper. We will put um, notes about this paper in the show notes uh, as well some interesting things that I think you could draw correlations about this when you think about something like uh, obesity or what was the last couple things that you said in addition to obesity? and No good good evidence for obesity, static foot posture, like overpronation, and physical activity level, either too much or too little. 
Yeah. So some of those factors could be related to, you know, how those tissues are getting loaded under certain conditions, and it's just difficult to identify that accurately with research. So um, those are certainly things that we could look at and, and think about them as, as uh, pertinent and relevant factors, maybe, but not the kinds of things that you have to, you don't ever want to say, oh, this is a no-brainer just because this person uh, is large, they're going to have tendon disorders. There certainly isn't that kind of thing. Uh, in there. I did want to also make one quick comment too, back to what we had mentioned a couple moments ago about medications, um, because there's another very important category of medications they had mentioned in that paper that's also been identified with, with tendon disorders, and that's corticosteroids. Um, and uh, I had read this paper a number of years back. I'm not sure if this has been validated multiple times since then, but uh, <clears throat> I thought it was quite interesting that was uh, indicating that they were looking at Achilles tendon ruptures and looking at the um, various factors that had led to a likelihood or a predisposition to Achilles tendon ruptures, be it, you know, chronic overuse or, you know, what are all the different factors that we had mentioned a moment ago. And one of the most common um, causes or reasons for a person developing uh, Achilles tendon ruptures had turned out to be a history of corticosteroid treatments for Achilles tendinosis. Mm -hmm. So uh, when they had been treated with corticosteroids, that has a, a, a detrimental effect on the connective tissue strength and can cause more tendon degeneration over time. Which is interesting because the steroids, the corticosteroids, turn off inflammation, so they make it feel better, but they yeah. also turn off the healing and repair processes. Yeah, and there's been a bunch of studies into that, including Gooms, uh, the Coombs and Bissett, that's the one I noted down in my homework here, where they saw steroid injections, people had steroid injections, had worse outcomes, more recurrences, and decreased effectiveness of their physiotherapy compared to doing nothing. So it hurt, yeah. it hurt less when they got the injection, but then their long-term uh, effects were not. Yeah. And, you know, uh, when you think about this, idea of these problems being less of an inflammatory problem and more one of chronic tendon or collagen degeneration in there. And then you see why a treatment like corticosteroid injections, which tends to weaken collagen synthesis and the development of good, you know, healthy collagen rebuilding, uh, that really is a good indicator of why those, those treatments are highly problematic in many instances. I'm not sure I'm on board with the less inflammatory thing, by the way. Just a little asterisk okay. there. All right. Yeah. It's uh yeah. Well, let's get to that when we get there. But um, and you know, going back to this, let me let me sort of um, clarify a little bit when I say that yeah. too, because my understanding from from some of Jill Cook's thing was saying that the inflammatory thing may be occurring at, for example, earlier stages and not so much at later stages or something like that. So that you know, it may be more of a staged process of when that's happening as opposed to just not being there at all. So, but, Yeah, uh, and she does, that. even though she came back and says, well, I was really against inflammation in the 90s, and now I'm back in 2016 saying, well, actually there is signs of inflammation. Even at that yeah. point, she's saying, it may, I don't, she says, I don't think, in my opinion, it's not causing the pain is what she's saying. Yeah, she's still treating it as degeneration or de degradation, yeah. but the I don't know. It's it's a useful thing to keep for me to keep in mind as a practitioner that maybe the things that uh, cause inflammation are causing someone's distress. She's got an interesting test. Actually, I'm not sure it's her or somebody else I heard talking about this, but the ice cube test, where you actually if you ice uh, a tendinopathy or a place you suspect might have one of these conditions we're talking about. Uh, for 10 seconds, and it gets better, then she's suspecting uh, an inflammatory component. 
If it gets worse, she's suspecting a central sensitization component. Interesting. So that's tr- triggering some thermal sensitivity in that case. If it gets yeah. worse, and that's a sign that it's actually probably more nervous system than inflammatory. Yeah. Um, I remember, oh man, I cannot remember this exactly right now. I'd have to go back and look it up again. Maybe you might uh, know this too. This was in one of Lorimer Mosley's discussions about making distinctions between central versus peripheral sensitivity. And one of them has heightened sensitivity to thermal um, applications distally, peripherally, and the other does not. If I remember correctly, it's peripheral sensitization that has heightened sensitivity to thermal stuff. Is that correct? I remember it the other way around, but that's I wouldn't swear to it. Well, yeah, you might be right on that. I may be getting it backwards. So we'll have to look that up and see what that is. We'll address that in another episode at some point when we talk about central and peripheral sensitization. But the point being, one of them causes more... Uh, reaction to thermal sensitivity uh, locally in the periphery, less so for the other one. Okay, I'm going to try to bring myself and you out of the weeds here. It's so easy to get into these little uh, cool details about stuff. There's one more point, though, I wanted to make about causes. Uh, Tendons don't like compression. This seems to be, the again, the, the consensus amongst a lot of researchers these days. They don't like compression. They don't like angular pressing on them. They do like load. They do like tension. They do like to be uh, tightened or loaded up with either a stretch or especially an effort. So a longitudinal load seems to, tendons respond well in their healing and their sensitivity uh, normalization. They don't like to be squeezed, compressed, or angrily poked on. So how, well, can you give me some anatomy um, yeah. examples maybe of something where tendons would be under compression? Because that's yeah. not something that we think about a lot. Maybe other than the the obvious, like supraspinatus tendons getting compressed underneath the you know chromium process. Yeah. But there's, there's one. other things that seem to be Hamstring well. tendinopathies where you're sitting on your uh, hamstring attachments. You're sitting on your hamstring uh-huh. tendons. Yep. And just that yeah. sitting is a compression load on those, or a compressive force on those tendons that they don't like apparently if they do yeah. it too much and that keeps them irritated that's one reason yeah. hamstring tenopathy is so hard to recover from because you're always irritating them with the sitting on them yeah yeah i think and i had been um looking at one of the we probably were looking at the same paper that was talking about the compression factors in tendinopathies and i i thought this was really interesting they were giving some anatomical examples of places where tendons are kind of bowstrung across a bony prominence yeah. during a particular movement yeah. and that causes both compression and tension forces on those tendons. Mm. I didn't remember. That makes sense to me. I've heard that concept, but I didn't remember reading yeah. that. I was looking at yeah. Goom 2016 for this. Uh, he says it's the biggest single factor compression is for tendinopathies. Really? Yeah. Huh. So I'll tell you what. I'll go. Uh, let me see if I can find that particular paper so we can make note of it, and we will make sure to put that in the show notes. And in the meantime, it is uh, time for our halftime sponsor's message. Books of Discovery might be best known for producing Trail Guide to the Body, but we're also a whole lot more. We bring you the clinical learning tools you need to inform your intentional body work. Check out our kinesiology, pathology, and A&P texts. They not only build the foundation upon which great educators like Till and Whitney rely, but will also support you through your entire career. Books of Discovery is proud to support the thinking practitioner, and are offering a 15% discount when a listener enters thinking at the booksadiscovery.com checkout page. Enjoy the show. 
All right, great. Back from our uh, halftime sponsor message there, and thank you to Books of Discovery for that message. And um, right before our break, I was mentioning something about compressive um, forces on the tendons, and I did look that up during the break. That actually was also one of Jill Cook's papers, and we will put that in the show notes. The paper was called uh, Is Compressive Load a Factor in the Development of Tendinopathy? So uh, there's some really good anatomical um, discussions in there about things that are likely to to uh, cause those tendon disorders. So uh, now, of course, when we we talk about you know um, how these tendon disorders have come up, our big concern, what most of us want to hear about, is like, well, what can we do about it? So, yeah, um, tell tell me a little bit about what do you think is the role of manual therapy in addressing tendon disorders? Oh, geez, okay, put me on the spot because there's yeah. there is a lot of controversy about that too. It's it's an interesting topic because a lot of people, well, let's say massage therapists, I know structural integration people too in the early training are often taught don't work on it if it's inflamed. If it has some right. of these yep. signs we've been talking about, especially any swelling, yep. redness, uh, that kind of sensitivity that gets worse with use, et cetera, yep. overuse. Then Which poses a challenge for us, I think, because so many of these tendinopathies, even when there is an inflammatory process present, it's a really low-level inflammatory process and not often easily identifiable through our usual methods of identifying that. Well, even if we were the kind of person that follows the rules, which I have to confess I'm not always... Then yes, yeah, you rule breaker. Then then finding uh, does it uh, you know is it does it fit the classical inflammation science is challenging, but being a rule breaker, turns out that sometimes when you work inflamed things they get better. Although it's a really high risk maneuver, I'm not recommending that here because it, there's a lot of considerations. Yeah. But uh, so even direct work, like fairly deep work, can help uh, inflammatory conditions or degenerative conditions under the right circumstances, but it's not the first line of approach at all. And there's, like I said, a lot of considerations about like your yeah. skill, your training, the client's uh, overall health and resilience, all those kinds of things. Yeah. Still, there are a lot of uh, approaches that treat tenopathies pretty directly, like the Syriax model, like Gua Sha, like different things that get in there, and, or uh, Graston, to get in there and just really aggressively work Uh, inflamed areas to try to make them better. And the strange thing is, in spite of some of the horror stories and and, uh, scary things that you'll see on the internet, if you Google any of those to look for pictures, they do seem to help some people. People will get better sometimes after skilled, careful, direct work. Now, the theory there is that maybe we're rebooting an inflammatory uh, process. That's one of the theories. Each of those methods I mentioned has their own theories and mechanisms they propose. But the one that makes the most sense to me is that direct work can sometimes reboot or restart an inflammatory cycle that's been stalled out. Because inflammation is good. It doesn't resolve that it's bad. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I know when I was originally taught uh, ideas about treating tendonitis problems, and this was back in the 80s, you know, our um, model that we were going by was this idea that you're getting in there and realigning scar tissue on torn tendon fibers when you do deep friction applications and break it up. We and do know now it. there's all kinds of <laughs> yeah, all kinds of problems with that idea that really don't make it uh, as plausible. But we're not sure. People get. I'm going to jump in. Yeah. We're not sure yeah. that we can break it up, and we're not sure yeah. that it reorganizes as it heals. But no, we were taught the same thing as Rolfers. Yeah, let's get in there and reorganize it. Exactly. Yeah. So. And then the question comes up, well, maybe if, if there's not as many torn tendon fibers in there, and, and again, there's still other questions about how much could we really reorganize microfibers that small with what we're doing with manual pressure on some of those tendons. Uh, but we'll, what we do know is that people, like you said, 
Lots of people get better when we do that. So what's really happening? Um, and there certainly there has been, I don't think that by, by all means the jury's not out or the jury is still out on this in terms of what the real answer is, but there has been some indication that pressure and movement on a tendon Indi- or uh, stimulate fibroblast activity yeah. that help in the collagen rebuilding process. And maybe that's what a lot of this is really about, is about the stimulation of the collagen rebuilding process. Or uh, that fibroblasts, from an inflammatory point of view, that in fibroblasts help regulate inflammation. Maybe they're building fibers. They are. But maybe their activity actually modulates the inflammation. That's the other possible component in there. Yeah. Anyway, there's some more about manual therapy's role that I wanted to mention, that a lot of this stuff normalizes sensation. That, you know, the, the jury's out, as you said, on the actual tissue effects. But what we know and agree on is that when you get good touch, whether it's light touch or deep touch, it's helping you refine your proprioception and it's helping your brain and central nervous system calm down a little bit around what you've been experiencing as pain. So a lot of the manual therapy's role is probably in that sense. We're probably getting the brain used to sensation there in a way that it doesn't have to protect against so much. And that's also still a really important factor in the the rehabilitation process because there's uh, several of the things that I had been reading about uh, tendon, you know, changes in, in sort of our perception about tendon treatments have indicated that, well, some of the stuff that we're doing may not necessarily be changing a lot of tissue construction properties per se, but the pain management process really helps the body be able to get to a place where the rebuilding can really recur. So like in in the tendon regeneration process, a lot of what's really important is that in these chronic overuse tendon disorders, a lot of uh, sort of collagen rebuilding builds around the damaged tissue and sort of uh, doesn't necessarily repair what's there, but it yeah. sort of strengthens and builds stuff around that. That's uh, right. Have you indica- uh, run across that discussion as well? Well, Jill Cook, again, my biggest yeah. uh, source on that, she says, no, it's once you've got that degradation or degeneration, it there's not really good evidence that it does thoroughly get back to how it was before. You yeah. do get repairs. The repairs are typically with type 3 collagen, which is stretchier and not as structural as the type 1 collagen it was originally. And that that structural propensity, she says, in her structural view, leaves it vulnerable to feeling pain again later. Now, she sees movement and exercise and loading as being the way to prevent that. If you keep moving, you keep loading it, then it keeps it, even if it has undergone that injury, it keeps it less sensitive over time. And so there is hope there. Yeah. And there's certainly been a lot of emphasis on uh, eccentric loading of those tendons as an important part of the rehabilitation process. And I think there's still, you know, the, there's still some debate about, you know, why is that particularly beneficial? But there's, there is a fair amount of evidence that does point to that being helpful and beneficial. And I, I think the important thing, really, the big takeaway that I see from this is um, uh, the um, Greg Lehman has a great quote that he said a number of years ago, and he's put that out in some of his uh, article and reference uh, material about dealing with, and this really, this is true for soft tissue problems all over the body in all kinds of instances. And he says, basically, most of our rehab work can be boiled down to a really simple statement, which is calm shit down and then build shit back up. And that's really what we're all trying to do here. Greg Lehman, he's, he's really using uh, the tendinopathy research as a model for a lot of his work with pain throughout the body. He's really saying that, yeah, when we calm it down and build it up, that we're actually helping people get back to function 
And we can yeah. do that in simple ways. We don't have to get so complicated about it. So he's got some yeah. interesting this, things to say. I got a couple more things about manual therapy's role. Should I get yeah, back to that? So one of them is gliding. If we get back to, again, physical um, possible mechanisms, there isn't really good evidence that we're rearranging fibers. There's decent evidence that we change gliding with manual therapy or with other kinds of movement things. We change movement between structures. And so that's relevant to, say, the bursitis situations or the peritendin, the wrappings around the tendons that exist everywhere, whether or not there's a synovial sheath, that those are gliding surfaces. And that even within the tendon, there's a kind of gliding within the fascicles that they extend kind of like a car radio antenna, that they kind of have a internal intra-tendon gliding that is increased by uh, manual therapy, we, we can suppose, or we can at least imagine. And that seems to help people's tendons feel better. There's also ways that we're probably increasing perfusion and all the good things that brings in when you get more goodies in there in your blood or lymph flows or interstitial flows, healing can happen more. There may be a role for manual therapy in changing Golgi tendon organ regulation of that muscle's tone as well. There may be a way that just helping that muscle have a lower set rate could give the tendon a break, teaches you how to relax deeper. And then in our approach, in our advanced myofascial techniques approach, we have a whole CALMS protocol. CALMS is the acronym that gives like five different ways to work with uh, different kinds of inflammatory conditions, and they probably all useful. What's that? Can you uh, elaborate on what that acronym stands for? Oh, it's a secret, actually. Oh, no, yeah. I'm kidding. Oh, yeah. No, I'm kidding. It's not a secret. <laughs> but it's, uh, it is, let's say, put it this way, it is more of a punchline to a joke. But it, I'll just... Yeah, okay. Uh, all right. It's, uh, just real briefly, it's, it's client engagement. Uh-huh. Uh, Autonomic nervous system changes, liquids and hydration, movement safety, and stimulating responses. Yeah. So those are the four kind of established and well-accepted ways that hand, manual therapy can help different yeah. kinds of conditions like these. Yeah. So, you know, what I think we can really see here is there's a plethora of ways in which manual therapy can be beneficial for addressing these types of problems. And we don't necessarily yet know all the mechanisms of exactly why that's happening, but we certainly do seem to have a, uh, some good theoretical models and possibilities to explain why. And we do know that people get really good results from it. And the big important takeaway here is that this is a situation, I think, where it's very unlikely that manual therapy approaches are contraindicated for most of these chronic overuse tendon disorders, and they can really provide very good uh, treatment approaches as long as you're not overdoing it. So did, that's you, whole, did you say they're not contraindicated? I mean, it's okay to do manual therapy with these? Is that what you're saying? I'd say for the vast majority of them, they're not contraindicated yeah. if you stay within the that Goldilocks zone, which is <laughs> don't do too much, but do enough to really get some of those physiological properties happening. Now, can you overdo it and overtreat somebody and cause further injury? Absolutely. I think, you know, a really badly irritated chronic overuse tendon disorder that you get down and then just crank on with with you know manual pressure and you know compressing compression and friction whatever you can certainly make that worse so um, you've got to be in that goldilocks zone of not too much but just enough to help make a, a difference there and that zone of course can differ from person to person so based important on history and all kinds yeah, of things so, so important and so variable and then the other factor in there is one is pressure the goldilocks amount of pressure but also the the length of time you're working on it how frequently yeah. you're working on it all those kinds yeah. of things are such important things to tune and play with. Yeah. 
What are your thoughts on, uh, you know, there's certainly a lot of uh, controversy these days that we're hearing about ICE applications. You know, mm-hmm. is it good? Is it not so good anymore? Or, like, mm-hmm. are we jumping off the ICE bandwagon? Are we still doing it? What are your thoughts on that for these, these overuse tendon disorders? I usually claim to be an agnostic there because I don't really use ICE in my practice. I don't have a lot of direct experience with it. And I know that there are uh, ardent supporters and... Uh, uh, people that oppose ICE's use on both sides. The arguments against it being that if it slows down the inflammatory processes, it's actually slowing down healing. And there yeah. does seem to be some evidence for that. There is good evidence that it's analgesic, that it does a short-term pain relief, which yeah. might be why it's used quite a bit still in professional top-level sports where they really are looking at bang for their buck. They really don't want to use treatments that aren't giving them a dollar return on their investments, yeah. and ICE is still used there. But there, their measure is usually return to play. They want to yeah. get people back in the game, and ICE seems to help people do that. Whether that's good for long-term healing or not, that's what the debate is about. Yeah, I'm, and I'm uh, in full agreement with you there. I think the big the, the big things that, that I think personally are most beneficial with ICE is really around its an- analgesic benefits right now for pain management more so than our former models or ideas about we need to stop the inflammation process because mm. it's out of control sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that does seem to be kind of where the, the trend uh, in the rehab world is, is moving. The same thing applies then to NSAIDs like ibuprofen or painkillers that, that dampen inflammation. They yeah. do help short term, but maybe they don't help with healing. In fact, there's a window of a couple of days there after an injury where some people are saying, don't avoid them if you can, because you'll you'll get that inflammatory cycle through its worst stages quicker if you're not taking an anti-inflammatory. Yeah, that's an interesting idea, yeah. And then maybe think about them later on down the road if, if needed. when you're in that building stuff back up process, yeah. you know, that there is some discomfort. But again, not to the point that you're masking beneficial pain that's telling you, hey, I'm overdoing it. Uh, so Yeah, or again, interrupting beneficial physiology that's trying to fix you, trying yeah, to repair you. Yeah, so... Uh, it would be great if we came with a user manual that gave us all these uh, explanations specifically for how to handle stuff uh, oh, or could dial up technical support on our tendon pathology. I but, think that's what a lifetime is. It's like the writing your user yeah. manuals, and then you know at some point. It and is. And you're done. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So, um, what else you want to talk one? about? I other, I got a couple other effective treatments. You want to touch in about those? Yeah, let's, let's hear it. Let's hear those. Yeah. All right. Uh, graded loading. You mentioned graded work, like manual uh-huh. therapy, but it's also important that people move and load them. It needs to be graded. People need to learn how to use their sensitive tendinopathy possibility uh, part of their body. You know, part that isn't yeah. possibly to, uh, has some of that going on. They need to learn how to use it in a way that's graded and right. And that's yes. probably, for most of a manual therapist, that might not be in your scope of practice. That might be a strength and conditioning coach or a physical therapist or somebody that really has that kind of background to help mm-hmm. someone come up with uh, routines that help them load it and move. In a, in a restorative way. Resolving, be, being the inflammation junkie that I am, uh, resolving or addressing any systemic contributors to inflammation can help with these local tendinopathies as well. Those are the big ones, sleep, stress, self-care, movement, et cetera. Maybe different, yeah. you know. And I would, um, one other thing I want to put a plug in here for too, there was some really good stuff that was written in I.L. Lederman's um, book on, um, and I'll have to put this in the show notes because I cannot remember right off the top of my bat, his uh, book on manual therapy, the, the exact title of it. The but brain, he something has the a, brain, huh? E, yeah, let's see if I, I'm trying to see if I had it on my bookshelf here, not right in front of me, yeah. but um, 
he's got a concept in there that he talks about called function size, mm. which is don't get too wrapped up in having to have specific exercise movements that a person needs to be doing. Talk about what they're doing on a daily basis yeah. that's going to help load that thing, like unloading the dishwasher, you, you know, putting away the dishes, you know, uh, sweeping uh, the steps off, all of those things that are good functional movements that will put appropriate loads on those tissues in the rehabilitation process without feeling like you have to go get a gym membership and do all this kind of organizational stuff. Because what tends to happen with so many people is they just don't do it. Um, you know, they don't, don't do the, the movement things that they often need to be doing. But if you can really meld it into something that's part of their daily life, that's part of the uh, daily activities that they're doing, it's far more likely to get uh, a good degree of compliance with that. Uh, can I throw in a couple more fun facts? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, Val Jones, who I respect, she's she says you did a review of the evidence for different treatments for uh, tendinopathy. She says there's actually some evidence for laser treatments, which I didn't know, and I am I tend to be a laser skeptic, honestly. Yeah. But yeah. there is some evidence, although there's not good evidence around the dosing for lasers. She says there's uh, evidence for short-term acupuncture benefit for tendinopathy, but not long-term. Mm-hmm. There's no evidence of benefits for ultrasound or electrical stimulation, she says. There's evidence yeah. for uh, effect of uh, beneficial effects of taping while the tape is on, for example, but n- yeah. unclear, unclear whether it's lasting or long-term. Yeah. Uh, what else? Oh, my own tip, just, to, just uh, you know, are we ready for that, closing tips? Yes, absolutely. Let's do it. I'd say it's like don't be afraid of it, but don't keep re- provoking flare-ups. Watch for flare-ups. Yeah. Right. Flare-up is a sign that you did uh, enough to stir things up. Stirring it up can be helpful once or twice in the otherwise resilient, okay client, but don't keep doing it because that yeah. won't help it heal over time. Yeah. So these are some important guidelines, I think, you know, uh, to sort of key takeaways here that we want to think about are looking at causative factors, make sure you take a thorough history, get information about what might be the uh, cause of, of chronic tendon disorders, do some good physical examination to note, you know, note where particular tissues might be overly pain sensitive, yeah. and then target some of your uh, treatments on those types of things with the variety of methods that, that uh, Till had mentioned here. Those are uh, good strategies, I think, to kind of keep in mind for, for um, methods to address it. And remember Goldilocks. That's right. Remember Goldilocks. Not too much, just enough. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, all right. Well, that sounds like a, a good um, bit of things that we can dive into today to uh, look at tendon pathologies. And uh, please be sure to join us again uh, in two weeks. We're going to be talking about scoliosis, I believe. Is that, that where we are? That's what we got right. on our list, unless something else yeah. catches our interest in the meantime. That's what we're going to yeah. shoot for. Okay. That sounds good. Well, we'd like to send, a, again, a big thank you to our sponsors for sponsoring the show, helping us make this available to everyone. And you can stop by our show for uh, show notes, information on CE credit updates, and any of the extras over there at thethinkingpractitioner.com. And Till, where can people find you on the web? Advanced-trainings.com. Show notes are also there, as well as information about our trainings, advanced-trainings.com. How about you, Whitney? And you can find us uh, information on us and uh, training programs and other things that we've got going on over at the Academy of Clinical Massage. And as always, if you've got questions, comments, or would like to give us some input about uh, things that you'd like to hear us uh, talking about, send us a note to info at thethinkingpractitioner.com. You can also drop uh, notes on our pages over on social media as well. Or rate us on Apple Podcasts, please. And 
wherever else you listen, and then please send your friends. All right. That sounds good. So uh, take care, everyone, and we'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Whitney. See you later. Okay. Take care.